Good morning, VRVC, in person, online. So glad uh, we get to open God's word together and to worship together today. Um, if we're uh, continuing this summer sermon series on this amazing person from the Old Testament, a prophet named Elijah, and we're looking at his life through the lens of courage, how God supplied Elijah with courage and how we can find courage for the challenges that we face in our lives. And so far, we've looked at Elijah struggling with opposition, last week, tragedy. Today, we want to see his struggle with confusion or, or indecision. Uh, and really our struggle with confusion and indecision. We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 18. And I invite you to have that passage open in front of you, whether you have an analog Bible or a digital Bible. And while you're finding it, uh, you know, I still remember the edge in my dad's voice when he was trying to help me learn how to drive. Usually, most of the time, his voice was pretty kind and gentle and soft-spoken, but everything changed when he was in the passenger seat of our 1971 Ford LTD, and I was in the driver's seat, 16-year-old Larry. And I had this memory that I would often see my dad pushing an imaginary brake uh, on, the, on the floorboard on his side. He was always telling me to slow down, to leave plenty of space between my front bumper and, and the back bumper of the car in front of us. And on this one particular occasion that stands out, I don't know, maybe the third or fourth time we'd been out together uh, with me driving, uh, he wanted me to experience the freeway. He probably didn't want that, but he knew it was necessary. And so I'll never forget, you know, we're, it's kind of the Padre Island, uh, drive freeway and we, we, were, we were in Corpus Christi, we were, we we're kind of in the, the on-ramp and there's the, uh, uh, there's the yield side and sign and I remember my dad and me both kind of looking back over our shoulders uh, at the oncoming traffic. And now, once again, as I, as, as, as I said, in my mind, a new driver, right? In my mind, my dad was tap the brake guy, right? Uh, in my mind, my dad's philosophy was slow and steady wins the race. And so here I am, I'm tapping the brake, I'm in the on-ramp, I'm kind of slow and steady, and, and I'm not exactly sure how this is going to work. Like those cars going 70 miles an hour, are they going to stop uh, for me to actually get on the, on the freeway? And here I am, I'm kind of ambling my way, and all of a sudden, my soft-spoken, gentle dad just yells in one of the sharpest tones I've ever heard out of him. He says, gun it like that, just gun it. And, uh, and I think he said some other words as a, uh, as a devout Baptist deacon. He usually didn't say, uh, and, and I did. And, uh, and we both lived to tell the story. Now, now needless to say, that, that whole experience, if you will, ended up being a, a very important lesson for me and not just for driving. Because guess what? There are times in life when playing it safe is not the safe thing to do. There are times in life when playing it safe is the dangerous thing to do. It's the wrong thing to do. It's the deadly thing to do. There are times in life when we need to gun it, okay? Now I think this truth, this, this call to courage in the face of indecision in the on-ramp of life, I think this is underscored brilliantly in 1 Kings chapter 18. And because this story is pretty long, 
I mean, really, it takes the whole chapter. I want to approach it a little differently than I do most of my sermons. Uh, If you're new here, usually I'll read a passage of scripture, five to 10 verses on the front end, usually, and and then kind of talk about it. But instead of doing that this morning, what I want to do is I want to actually tell you the story in my own words. Now, from time to time, we're going to put some verses up on the screen that it can kind of orient you like, where is he at in this thing? And it'll orient you to where we are. I'm not going to really interact with the verses on the screen or read them like I usually do. But when they come up, you you can kind of know where we are and you can check my work too, uh, which I think is pretty important. Uh, And and I'm going to make an aside here and there, but mostly I want to spend the majority of the sermon just sharing the story with you. I think that's really important. We want to be people of biblical imagination. We want to have these biblical truths and narratives solidly in our minds. So I hope you'll just take it all in. And then I'm going to reserve a little bit of time at the end, a little bit of time, but very important time to focus in on application. Okay? That's our plan. I want you to be thinking about where is it in your life where spiritually you're indecisive when it comes to your relationship with God. Okay, here we go. It's 800 years or so before Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Uh, as we've said often in this, in this series, uh, the, the northern kingdom of Israel where Elijah is, uh, it's, it's just upside down uh, morally and spiritually. Economically, yeah, things are going up and up and up for the time being, but spiritually, the, the, the hearts of the people are divided. Uh, they're, they're trying to pretend and give external worship to Yahweh, uh, but at the same time, they're flirting with other gods. And the main false god in this section of the Old Testament is Baal. Baal's the rainmaker god, so to speak, or or, or that was his reputation. And Baal and also a goddess named Asherah are are siphoning off a tremendous amount of religious devotion from the hearts of the people. Now for that, you can thank in part an evil king named Ahab and his wife Jezebel, who actually aided and abetted the prophet's of Baal and Asher. So that's the lay of the land as 1 Kings chapter 18 opens. Now, uh, a couple of weeks ago when we launched the series, we told you that Elijah's first official act in, in the book of 1 Kings is to announce the word of the Lord that there's going to be a drought. Uh, the rain is going to stop, not just for weeks, not just for months, but for three years. Can you imagine uh, the, just Delcus giving you the 10-day forecast for three years and just saying, I, you know, there's a... What is it, a high pressure, you know, uh, deal for for three years. And life is so desperate that uh, King Ahab, I mean, he he needs to keep keep his his horses alive for his army. And so he sends uh, one of his uh, administrators, a guy named Obadiah, to try to find any remaining sources of water uh, in the land just to keep the the, the horses alive. And to make a long story short, Obadiah, uh, the king's servant, who's also a believer and is actually sheltering a hundred prophets secretly, he runs into Elijah and, and ultimately he sets up a meeting between Elijah and King Ahab. Now, it's pretty well known that Ahab hates Elijah. So why would King Ahab agree to meet with Elijah? Well, perhaps he was trying to use Elijah. You know, a lot of powerful people think that they can manipulate others. Maybe he was trying to use Elijah to use his spiritual power to stop the drought. But regardless of what happens, there's a very tense conversation, short, tense conversation that initially takes place between King Ahab and the prophet Elijah. And if you want to try to remember this conversation later, just remember this one key word, trouble. Trouble. It's a conversation about trouble. 
okay? King Ahab takes one look at the prophet Elijah and says, and this is Larry's paraphrase, paraphrase but, but King Ahab says, well, looky here. <laughs> if it ain't that old troublemaker causing havoc in Israel. Well, Elijah, guess what? He's not having it. I mean, he takes that word trouble and he throws it right back at the king. He says, you know what? You want to talk about trouble? You're the one causing trouble, King Ahab, and your daddy and his daddy before him and your government. You're the one that's disobeying God's holy laws. You're the one that's, that's calling the people to worship these idols like Baal. A little aside, we'll get back to the passage in just a second, but a little aside, sometimes in life it's hard to know who the real troublemaker is, isn't it? Sometimes in life it's hard to know who's really causing the trouble. So I'm going to give you a hypothetical situation. This is, this is a made-up story, but let's just say that you live far away from your family and you show up at Christmas to stay for a week. All your siblings live locally. You're the black sheep that moved far away, but you're coming back in. You're going to be uh, staying at your parents' house for a week for Christmas. And over a few consecutive days, let's say that you observe an alarming pattern. And the pattern is this. Your dad starts to drink uh, heavily in the evening and every night passes out on the couch. This happens Monday, this happens Tuesday, this happens Wednesday, but nobody talks about it. None of your other family members talk about it. And, and, and they pretend like nothing's going on. But you, as far as you can see, it looks like your dad is speeding toward an early date with the funeral home. And so one night at the family dinner table, mom, dad, all the siblings are there. You name the problem out loud. And things do not go well. Dad slams the table and yells at you. Mama leaves the table crying. And all the siblings express their horror at you because you have just ruined Christmas. Let me ask you, who's the real troublemaker? Elijah would say the troublemaker is not the one who calls the fouls. Elijah would say the troublemaker is the one who ignores the fouls day after day after day. Okay, back to our passage. So Elijah, after this little back and forth about trouble, he shows a tremendous amount of, to use the Yiddish word, chutzpah, and, uh, and he lays out a plan for the king. It's, it's almost like a duel, spiritually speaking. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a winner-take-all kind of contest. Elijah says, let's call as many people as can come to Mount Carmel, which is, uh, I've been privileged to be on a top of twice. It's this beautiful mountain ridge in northern Israel along the Mediterranean Sea. And Elijah says, look, you come, king. You bring your wife and all her favorite false prophets that she feeds at her table and and, and I'll meet you there and we'll invite the people, as many who can come, to come. And so the next day, everybody shows up and right off the bat, Elijah makes his case. He addresses the people, not the king, queen, prophets of Baal, but he addresses the people, the men and women of the jury, so to speak, the, the ordinary citizens, the farmers, the worshipers of Yahweh who are struggling with this divided loyalty, this indecisiveness between do I worship Yahweh or do I worship Baal or do I worship Asherah? And Elijah asks him a very important question. 
He says, how long are you going to, as a people, waver in confusion, in indecision? How long are you going to waver between two opinions, between two worldviews? The the Hebrew word for waver, it it means literally limp or or hobble. How long are you going to hobble over here to Yahweh and then hobble over here to Baal and then hobble over here and here and there? How long are you going to waver between two opinions? And I think underscoring what Elijah is saying is that the human heart is not like your investment portfolio, where you divvy out funds to cover all kinds of contingencies, and there's a little worship of money over here, and a little worship of career, and there's a little worship of pleasure, but then we got a good 5 to 10 to 20% that's going to Yahweh. We're just kind of keeping all the bases covered. The, The human heart is not like that. Jesus said it clearly, no one can serve two masters. You'll end up loving one and hating the other. In other words, I think what Elijah's saying is it's time to stop drifting onto the freeway. It's time to stop tapping the accelerator, then tapping the brake, then tapping the accelerator, then tapping. If, 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 if God is God, then gun it. Whole heart in his direction. Do you want to know how bad it was in the hearts of the people when they, when they heard this? I mean, Elijah, uh, is, you know, we say in a Baptist business meeting, Elijah calls the question, right? Uh, it's, it's the time for debate is over. Let's decide. He calls the question. He throws down the gauntlet. Who are you going to serve? And uh, it's time to either slam on the brakes or gun it. And the people just sit paralyzed in confusion. The people said nothing. And so... Elijah launches the next phase of this holy operation. He calls for two oxen. He lets the opposing team, the prophets of Baal, pick their oxen. He takes the the second ox and uh, he instructs that both ox are to be slaughtered and then the meat is to be laid out on their respective altars. And then each team is to call out to their God and see which God answers approvingly uh, with fire. And the people who've just been paralyzed, now they finally start to speak. And it's like, yeah, I think that's a good plan. Okay, yeah, you got my vote. I'm in full agreement of that. And, and from that point on, um, you know, I want to say comedy ensues, but, uh, but it's not funny. I mean, it kind of is, but it's also kind of tragic. So you decide for yourself because you've got these 400 plus prophets of Baal and, and they butcher their ox and they lay the meat out on their altar. And then they call a prayer meeting to Baal and, and all 400 plus of them cry out to Baal. They say, Baal, answer us, you know, and, and, uh, and they plead with Baal all morning, but nothing. They shout to Baal, no response. They dance around Baal's altar in desperation, still nothing. And Elijah, Elijah's an interesting guy. I'm not exactly sure I'd want to hire him for our staff. I'm just kind of saying that, but but I admire him. But but Elijah, I mean, at this point, he's he's kind of cold. I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Elijah tells the prophets of Baal to shout 
louder, you know? Maybe your God is distracted. You know, in the ancient world, you often had to like take care and baby the idols and baby your gods, right? So, so maybe your God is distracted. Maybe he can't hear you. You know, maybe he's asleep. You gotta wake him up. And, and he's just trash talking and, and taunting them. And this goes on way past lunchtime. They try everything they can think of, but the devastating reality is that there was no response from Baal. No response. And Elijah says, you know what? I think uh, you guys have been trying long enough. It's my turn. Now, apparently there was an old altar, although Mount Carmel was a popular place for the worship of Baal, there was an old altar to Yahweh there. But it was in terrible shape. It was all broken down. And, Yahweh, and, and Elijah actually asked for some help. He said, I need somebody to help me. Let's, let's rebuild this old ruined altar to Yahweh and, and actually set up those 12 stones, each one representing the, the 12 tribes of Israel, a way of helping those who were the onlookers remember that original covenant that God had made with Israel. Which, by the way, a little aside here, but when you think about it, that's not a bad picture of repentance, is it? I mean, where is it in your life, where is it in my life where the worship of God is neglected? Where the worship of God is like an altar that has been abandoned? And what would it mean to rebuild that devotion, that worship of God, to remember the covenant God has made? Well, the altar is rebuilt, and then Elijah must have really confused everybody because he starts digging these huge trenches around the altar. And then he calls for these jars of precious water. I mean, it's a three-year drought. He calls for jars of precious water to be brought and to drench the whole thing. Wood, stones, meat, altar, little troughs out beside it, everything. They do, and he says, now let's do it a second time. They do, he says, let's do it a third time. Just precious water running everywhere. And then Elijah prays a simple prayer. No, no dancing, no shouting, no cutting himself. He just prays to Yahweh, the God of his people. And he asks Yahweh to answer in such a way that it will be clear to everybody who the real God is. Elijah asks God to demonstrate his power in such a way that his people will get one more chance for repentance. And that's when it happened. You know, Baal, the supposed god of rain and lightning and thunder, he's not even managed to get up a gentle breeze. But when Elijah prays, fire, presumably from lightning, falls on this drenched altar and burns up everything. And finally, these people who've been on the fence, these people who've been tapping the brake and tapping the accelerator with, with Yahweh and going back and forth and confused and indecisive, finally, these people who've been quiet, right, wavering back and forth between Yahweh and Baal, finally, they get it. And they, and they cry out and they fall down and they say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Which, by the way, is what Elijah means. El is Yahweh. The Lord is God. The Lord is the true God. Now there's more to the story. Long chapter. Uh, there's a tragic ending for the prophets of Baal. Uh, there's a rainstorm that ends the drought. 
But I want to just kind of pause at this point. I want to thank you for your attention uh, to this amazing, powerful passage. And I just want to ask you to sit with these details of the story, sit with them in your mind. And in the few minutes that remain, uh, I want to make my case to the men and women of the jury, so to speak. Now, I'll be clear, I'm pretty confident none of you burned incense to Baal before you came to church today. Uh, you know, none of you bowed at, you know, a, a statue of Asherah. I, I feel pretty confident of that. And yet still I wonder how many of us waver between two opinions, between two worldviews. How many of us, for example, do the God thing on Sunday but cover our bets with other gods on Monday. Friends, this is a time to be really honest about it, okay? Be really honest. Because we say we love Yahweh, but maybe money gets most of our time and attention and adoration and anxiety. We say we love Yahweh, but beauty is what we give everything for. We say we trust in Yahweh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, but we can't stop trying to control everything and everyone in our sphere of influence. Oh yeah, we'll tell anybody Yahweh is our God, but we feed anger and bitterness and rage every day. We, 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 we tell ourselves it's a righteous anger. But for our family, it doesn't feel that way. It just feels like we're feeding these grudges every day. We waver between Yahweh and whatever feels like God on Monday. Now, now friends, I just want you to think about that. I want you to think about how tragic it is to be spiritually confused, to be spiritually indecisive, to be spiritually immobilized. I want you to think for a moment about those prophets of Baal screaming for a God who never shows up. I wanna say this very clearly, other gods don't show up when we need them, okay? They don't answer the phone when we dial 911. And if you listen closely, you can hear it. The desperate sound of people crying out to a deaf and powerless God. Beauty, save me. Money, save me. Control, save me. Career, save me. Ambition, save me. Look, I mean, we're all in the same boat here, okay? Because all of us get distracted by competing priorities. We all get distracted by other gods. And the truth is we can scream until we're hoarse. We can even bleed for these other gods. Sometimes these other gods will definitely wound us. But what awaits us from these other gods at the key moment is silence, humiliation, and defeat. Friends, the prophets of Baal got all dressed up for a blind date who never showed up. Do you want to bleed for a God like that? Or do you want a God who bleeds for you? Jesus Christ on the cross giving everything for you. When Jesus on the cross cried out, it is finished, 
He meant that hopelessness is finished. He meant that terror is finished. He meant that wavering is finished. He meant that salvation is accomplished in Christ. Let's serve him. One of my favorite stories from church history is about one of the giants of the early church. I mean the early, early church. His name was Polycarp. And uh, he was said to have studied at the feet of John the Apostle when John uh, the beloved disciple was an old man and Polycarp was, a, was, was just a boy. And, uh, and, and Polycarp became a bishop and he served as, uh, in Asia Minor for 50 years. And in uh, AD 156, a persecution against Christians br- uh, broke out and Polycarp was arrested and he was summoned before the Roman authorities and he was called upon to confess Caesar is Lord Instead of the ultimate Christian confession of the New Testament, Jesus is Lord. But he wouldn't do it. And I think, you know, the, the, the Roman soldiers are thinking, do we really want to kill an 86-year-old pious man? And, and they're kind of coming up to him. They're going, come on, Bishop. I mean, what, what's the harm? Just, it's just three words. Just say the words, right? I mean, save yourself. You don't want to go out this way just because you're too stubborn to say Caesar is Lord. And I love how Eusebius, he was an early church historian. I love how he, he put it, how Polycarp, this ancient man of God, reacted. Polycarp said, look, for 86 years, I have been Christ's servant, and he has never done me any wrong. How can I blaspheme the king who saved me? And with that, Polycarp was burned at the stake. And yet his voice and his legacy, his witness, were not consumed by the fire. In the moment of decision, in his heart, Polycarp said, gun it. (laughs) His simple, uncompromising, courageous faith counted the cost. And he said, no, I'm not going to do it. I only have one Savior and one Lord. He's never done me any wrong. And I am going to serve him. Now, you've heard us say this in recent months. The, The pandemic has raised the stakes for us. As far as I'm concerned, it's never been a good time to play church, but, 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 but playing church now isn't even fun, right? I mean, I mean, why would we want to play church? Why would we want to sit on the fence? Why would we want to waver between what the world offers and what Christ, who's given everything for us, offers? The Christ who's never done us any wrong. Why would we want to hobble and limp back and forth You know, I want us to pray for revival. One of the signs of revival is that God's people get off the fence and get on their knees and and cry out, the Lord, he is God. Jesus Christ is Lord. We will serve him come what may. Can we do that, friends? Can we do that not just individually, but can we do that as a people? I'll close with this. One of my favorite stories, it's kind of a, a leadership maxim for me as well. And so some of you may have heard me share it before. 
Uh, It's of an uncertain origin. Some people say it it dates to John F. Kennedy's grandfather, uh, who was a boy in Ireland. He and his pals would be walking home from from school and they'd have their parochial school uniforms on, you know, complete from the the hat down to the the, the shoes. And, and, you know, like boys do, they're walking home. They would come to like a tall stone wall and, and, uh, and one of them would dare the other. I bet you can't climb over that wall. And, you know, boys and dares and all that kind of stuff. It, it's, there's something not right with boys, right? And so, uh, just kidding, boys. But, uh, but you know, and, and it's like, well, what, what do I do? I don't know if I can climb it or not, but, but yet he's dared me. And so this boy decided that the only way he could be sure that he'd had the motivation to persevere and climb the wall was to take his hat off and to throw it over the wall. Because if his hat was on the other side of the wall, He knew he would do anything and everything to be reunited with his hat. For us as a people, for me as a a believer and as a pastor, what I am praying for us is that we take our hats and we throw them over the wall, right? We take our hats, we throw them over the wall. No confusion, no indecision about our allegiance. We pray for the courage that only Christ can give. Let's do it, church. Let's throw our hats over the wall. Because you, you want to know what? Because the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. So here's what I want us to do, if you wouldn't mind, just bowing your heads and closing your eyes, just as a way of focusing your attention on God. Just as a way of making kind of a little private space or sanctuary. And I just want to ask the question, if if, if Elijah were to walk up to you and me today and say, what are you wavering over? Why are you wavering between God and and fill in the blank? It wouldn't be Baal or Asherah, but what would it be? What, What would go in that blank? What is it that siphons off the love that God alone deserves? We've already mentioned some possibilities. Maybe it could be money. It could be beauty. It could be control, it could be bitterness. We could add worry, uh, has a controlling interest in our lives, or fear, pride has a controlling interest, or or ambition, it could be addictive behaviors we haven't acknowledged yet in our lives. It could be so many things. But what I wanna ask you in this private space, can you just name that fill in the blank before God right now? Can Can you name it? Can you silently confess it to him? And then can you ask for God to help you gun it, (laughs) to give you this single-minded focus to say the Lord is God. I want to serve him and serve him alone. The Lord is God. My heart belongs to him. Ah, Lord Jesus The song says, listen to your people praying. Hear these holy prayers, Lord. Hear these holy confessions. These people are are naming it, your children naming it in their hearts, Lord. And now, Lord, we pray for those who don't yet know you, Lord, that you'd give them the courage to reach out and accept you as Lord and Savior for the first time. And for those who already call you Lord and Savior, Lord, that you would fill them with your spirit, as they confront this foe and this fear, and as they seek you with a pure and holy passion. 
So this is what we pray. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.